You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Integrated pest management is a holistic philosophy for controlling pests which takes into account the longevity of your plants and soil as well as ecological values. Whether you're working with a large agricultural paddock or whether you're just in a small ornamental or veggie backyard garden. There are six main methods of IPM that we'll be speaking about in this episode, which are cultural, physical, genetic, biological, chemical and regulatory methods. Our guest is Dr. Peter Ridland, who's an Aussie leader in this field, who's an honorary fellow in the Biosciences Department at Melbourne University. G'day Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Looking forward to it. Yeah, no rockers. So can you explain to us what does the term integrated pest management actually mean? Integrated pest management, it's one of these things, I think if you start to Google it, you would find about 500 different definitions. When I talk about integrated pest management, I really like to focus on the management side of things. It's about decision making, but it's essentially using as many tools in your armory to control pest diseases as possible. It's trying to get away from the focus of calendar spraying, just relying on insecticides. But it's really about understanding your crop, understanding the pests of both the insects and the the plant pathogens, so you understand their life cycle, so you can really make, make actual decent decisions about what you should be doing. And so that's where the management comes into it. You know, I would say integrated pest management, IPM, the IP is a lowercase, the M, the man- mm-hmm. M for management is in a, is a capital letters. So it's a kind of a long-term philosophy. It is a long-term philosophy. When I was, I was lucky enough to spend time working in Indonesia, working with growers there that were uh, working on vegetables. And way back when we had the, the green revolution in rice growing, Growers were basically given a package. They said, here's the high-quality seed. They'll yield very well, but you need to put on a lot of fertilizer and heaps of insecticide, and you'll make you'll grow lots of rice. But inevitably, they ran into problems with, with a plant hopper, and so that was because the spiders and other predators were, were killed, and the whole thing sort of really fell into a bit of a heap. It was, it was, a, it was well-meaning. It has been useful, but suddenly they realized that you couldn't just have one size fits all. And so the farmer field schools developed, and this was trying to get farmers who were probably not, not well educated. They were essentially peasant farmers, and they were just in the past, they were just being given things to do. Take this can, they mm. take this can of spray and the seeds. And so the farmer field schools is trying to get IPM systems going, and it was essentially about farmers learning how to grow a healthy crop. And they had to learn how to monitor the crop so they can understand what's going on. And then they can make a decision if you actually know what's going on. And they had to learn to identify and conserve natural enemies, whether they be parasitic wasps or predators, but also look at ways that they could augment those natural enemies. And so this was quite a radical change for the system there. Basically, the, the mainstream agriculture in Indonesia was totally dominated by pesticide companies vast numbers of products, everywhere you drove up every single tree on a, going on a mountain pass would have a, 
an insecticide advertisement on it. So they mm. were really, these farmers were just being battered by this information and this is the way to do it. But, mm. but when they had problems with insecticide resistance, they had no way of uh, getting around things. Yeah. I suppose when we're talking about so-called pests, they actually have a role to play within a natural ecosystem. And as you say, they actually have natural predators, right? Absolutely. So, of course, what we do when we, have, we grow a crop, we, we're the ones that have modified the ecosystem enormously. We've got a large amount of synchronised plant material available. So we've just planted a crop of peas, for example, 100 acres of field peas. They all come up at the same time. They're growing pretty well with fertilisers. And so if they get colonised by insect, an insect, for example, a helicoverpa moth, that's suddenly got a whole lot of uh, material to, to breed on. And so the parasitoids and the predators have to colonise that crop. So they're always lagging behind. And so because you've provided wonderful conditions of synchronised food for the, the pests, the way they, they roar away. And so the predators and parasitoids, if, they, if there's no insecticides there, will catch up eventually sometimes, but there may well be tremendous damage before that occurs because of this lag phase in colonising this large crop. So that's, that's one of the great challenges we have with, uh, with natural enemies in, on a large scale because they have to move in from somewhere else to, to colonise the crop. Hmm. And I suppose that those eggs aren't going to be in the area unless they're actually protected and looked after. Well, that's right. And so that's where, you know, as we're more and more learning more about it and we, we talk about conservation biological control as a, as a key weapon in an IPM program. And that's where you're looking to conserve your, the natural enemies that exist. In the, they might be parasitic wasps, they might be carabid beetles, they might be spiders, a whole range of things, and they would tend to be looked after, A, by not using broad-spectrum insecticides, but also having refuge areas on, on the edge of crops and things like that. So these are the sorts of things that we try and, uh, try and encourage. So you've touched on a few really interesting things there, and one of those things was a refuge area. Can you explain what a refuge area means, please? Well, a refuge area is somewhere where natural enemies can can live happily without being exposed to insecticides. One of the classic examples, I think, is uh, carabid beetles, which uh, are generalist predators, usually quite quite omnivorous, but they they uh, if they, they can move in from the edge of a crop or a, an area of uh, non-cultivated areas, and they can be its refuge. So they can then from there they can move back out into the into the crop. It's sort of been used, for example, in the UK where. They have what they call beetle banks, where they've actually had these refuges, you know, on smaller scale fields, but basically having banks where, even through the crop, with these beetle banks, where the where the carabid beetles are able to survive, and they they then they can move from those beetle banks back into the crop. So it's all sorts of things like that. But often it's there might be a lot of these insect pests will feed on a range of different host plants, some of which are crop plants and some of which are non-crop plants. And those non-crop plants can also be a they can be a reservoir for parasitoids. So that's uh, a very important way of, of of them surviving between crops. So you've mentioned that some of the sort of downsides of using pesticides are that you get rid of predators and natural enemies of pests. But can you tell us some of the other bad things that come along with pesticides? Well, really, the the pragmatic problem is that. Very quickly, in many cases, you, you end up with a resistant population. With continued use of the insecticide, 
resistant resistant individuals selected, and fairly rapidly they will uh, build up, and so that particular insecticide becomes not useful. And I always like to think of it's sort of human nature. You know, if you have a headache and you take an aspirin, that's fine. It's got a bad headache. People tend to take two aspirin, and that that doesn't work for insecticides. If you start to, the more mm. you put on, the greater selection pressure you will be, and the more likely you are to lead to a control phase. So I guess when you say resistant pests, you're talking about these pests are naturally being selected for a resistance to that chemical. Well, yes. Well, I wouldn't call it naturally selected. Mm. In the population, in, a, in an unsprayed population, there might be one individual in 200 million or something like that. A very rare individual has that resistance gene there, and usually that resistance gene is it's without. There's no benefit to it to have that resistance gene, so it stays at this very low level. Once you start spraying, the resistant individuals survive, and gradually the, that incidence of resistance genes builds up in the population. And so, and again, we've had examples with ryegrass, for example, use of herbicides on ryegrass leading to resistance. It's the same sort of principle. Mm-hmm. We had the same principle with antibiotics in humans, where ex- continued use of antibiotics can lead to resistant organisms. So. That's just one of the that's one of the driving forces behind uh, behind the management, and that's why it has to be sort of dynamic. Um, mm. But the other thing that you've alluded to is is the non-target effects. It's the um, residues in food, damage to just wildlife, just getting residues into water supplies, contamination of groundwater. All those sorts of things can be can be an issue. A lot of the modern insecticides are a lot less dangerous than the old ones. But equally, they tend to be very, they have a very more selective. That actually makes them more likely to be selective for resistance because it may just be one or two genes that, that's causing the toxicity. So that becomes a selection. So again, they become, and they're very expensive to produce. And so they need to be managed very carefully. People have got to be really careful not to use it, not to overuse them. If, you have, if you're dealing with lower cost crops, such as you might be growing field peas in the Mallee, where your margins are relatively low, the yields are fairly low, so you're not dealing in a situation where you have 10 sprays, for example. You, the question you have to have is whether you spray once or not at all. You know, is the crop actually going to yield anything? Is it going to dry off and not get any yield? So, and the major pest they often have would be a, a migratory pest coming in from the outback. outback. And so, again, you, that's, you're constantly getting dilution with the uh, with susceptible individuals, so it doesn't really become an issue. But it's, it's really the high-value horticulture, the high-value agriculture, where people are making a lot of money per hectare, and they understand we want to protect their their crops, and that's when calendar spraying becomes common. And so the, one of the, the important things with the IPM is monitoring your crop, seeing what's actually there, not just doing it, not spraying because it's Monday, but actually seeing what uh, mm. what's actually happening in the crop understanding the life cycles of the pests and diseases that are there, just don't spray because as an insurance policy, and I think that that's the sort of challenge to overcome. And what's happened is there are a number of very experienced IPM consultants that have uh, that now work in a lot of the high-value crops and, they, and they've been able to make very good uh, progress in, in helping their growers, helping their clients, their growers to, uh, to manage their their pests and diseases in a sustainable way. That's making money. That's not wasting money on insecticides, but also not saying you don't spray, but just spray when you need to with the appropriate 
chemicals, hopefully with a chemical that is as least toxicity as possible to the, your natural enemy. So you want all the, the different things going together. When we talk about IPM, there's a whole range of different uh, tools that you might have. You know, they're sort of you have got insecticides, but you've got you've got sol- selective ways of doing that. Whether it be uh, insecticides that are only targeting certain pests, they might be systemics, they might not be. But there's biological control agents, there's parasites and and predators, and also pathogens of insects. But also, there's um, it's about having growing a healthy crop to start with, making sure that the the, the planting material is as healthy as possible. Classic cases in potatoes where it's, it's you know you'd be crazy not to have a, a virus-free certified potato seed. So mm. there's quite an industry in producing high-quality seed for seed potatoes for, for growers because if you do plant infected planting material, especially there's things like potatoes which are, are clonal, so you're if it starts off being diseased or infested with insects, you can guarantee that the, you'll have problems. But uh, and the same sort of things happens with uh, with ornamentals as well. It's possible to get uh, virus-free strawberries. There's quite you know the strawberry runner scheme is a very important one, basic to Langi, and that's that's takes a lot of work, but they but it means that the growers are able to access high quality planting material to start with, and I think that's something that's really important. And that's important for, for all gardeners, really, to make sure that you have high-quality planting materials so that you, you're not planting problems into your garden or, or into your crop. And how can gardeners and growers sort of source a good quality sort of genetic material? Well, it depends on – usually you have to pay for it, but there's <laughs> – you know, Australia, we're in a very lucky position. We've got, you know, some very high-quality nursery production. and so. They rely very heavily on having high quality nursery seedlings. So, so for a, a gardener, it's, it's worth paying for decent seedlings. Really want something that's looking healthy and in, in, in it goes. But if you're growing potatoes, you'd want to have you know virus tested potatoes. But it, I think what you, you've got to be one of the, the standard things for both farming and for gardening. Things like sort of crop rotation. Uh, you can't afford to be continuing to plant. A root vegetable in that we year after year in the same piece of ground. You've got to be able to break them up. So these are very important ways of just keeping the soil healthy, building up your worms. So it's uh, so I guess it all gets back to your soil. You've got to you know look after your soil as much as you can, and that's sort of more and more. It's look making sure that uh, your organic matter is getting high in the soil. These sorts of things that you uh, you can't just just don't rely on packets of fertilizer because it's it's a pretty much a blunderbuss approach, mm. and what you and you've really got to sort of you know you, what you want is you you want to have your soil soil structure is really important. So that soils are living a living thing. There's just an extraordinary amount of microbes and insects and mites and fungi that all do do a really good job in there. But that's that's a bit of a black box, and so that's mm. almost the big. If you don't look after your soil, you've got problems. You're leaving your plants to be weak there, and that's when pests are going to swoop in. Well, that's that's right. It's sort of uh, it's obviously if, if something's weak, it's a sitting duck. But mm. the other sort of thing with the with the monitoring of these of your crops and your diseases is that one bit of damage doesn't necessarily mean it's not. You don't throw your hands up in the air and say it's a disaster. <laughs> the plants can actually withstand a hell of a lot of foliage damage. Well, you know there are pests that are. It can, be, it can be quite catastrophic if it's targeting the fruit and these sort of things once you've 
once you've had somebody nibble a tomato, you know that that tomato is not going to be any good. Mm. And not only gets to get eaten, it, it helps to bring pathogens into those wounded crops. But uh, certainly foliage disease, foliar feeders, the plants can withstand quite a lot of foliar damage if it's not been, if it's not the, what, you, what you're actually harvesting. If you're harvesting seeds or you're harvesting a, a pumpkin, a bit of damage on the, on the leaf doesn't really matter too much. But you just don't, you, you need to be watching it regularly to see what's happening. So you don't, you don't want to be caught with the final instar larvae of a caterpillar, which eats about 90% of, the, of its total leaf matter that will consume in its whole lifetime, you want to be able to know that you want to catch them well before that, before that situation. Hmm. Well, that comes up time and time again. What we're talking about here is, again, being observant with your plants. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's sort of, and it's not just pests and diseases, it's just how they're growing. It's sort of with the, you know, whether you're pruning it correctly, whether you it's just it's sort of understanding your plant really. Um, if you just leave them alone and just hope, don't, if you're not looking at them regularly, you'll get a, usually get some terrible surprises because, uh, <laughs> um, particularly in, in Australia, where you know, the last thing you want to do is have your plants dry out, desect desperately, and get stressed by, by moisture stress and these sorts of things. That, uh, and sometimes, there, if, if the plant's stressed, well, that's when a, an attack by a disease or a, an insect can act. You know, be the tip the bucket basically it just it, in a healthy plant it wouldn't matter but on a on a stressed plant it can be a problem mm. and i guess that's sort of what i was alluding to earlier when i said pests and diseases actually exist for a reason and that would be to take out weak plants to make room for strong plants well i guess if you talk quietly to the insect and the plant pathogen they, they'd probably disagree they're very much focused <laughs> on on their on keeping their genes surviving mm. so uh, that's the sort of uh, that's sort of in terms of an ecosystem. You're right. That sort of uh, there's sort of constant evolution. It's sort of you know in the wild, it's, it's not a static situation. Mm. Um, so that's that's very true. That uh, it's a survival of the fittest, and that's the sort of the, in whatever you're doing. So that whether the survival of the fittest isn't necessarily what uh, what we want. Mm. The plant's doing it for its own own ends, basically. Mm. So we're manipulating it a bit. So that's why we have to mm. help them out a little bit. Yes. So we've talked a little bit about choosing good genetic stock and genetic methods are one of the core principles in an IPM strategy. It is. Can you tell me a little bit more about what goes into choosing the right plant for the right place in an integrated pest management philosophy? Well, well basically, if you've, got a, if you've got a range of cultivars, you'll find that some, you're looking, the ideal situation is to have a cultivar that is resistant to either the pest or the disease. That can be expensive, but sometimes it's the only way we can do. For example, with some of our, our rusts in wheat, without having resistant cultivars, we wouldn't be able to grow the grow the crop successfully. One of the early experiences I had in IPM was involved in spotted alfalfa aphid, which came into the country in 1977, and it devastated the widely grown Hunter River loosen that was a generalist loosen. It was good for grazing, but it was also suitable for cutting for hay. But this aphid was had, was sort of phytotoxic to the to the loosen, and it was just ended up in a sort of a smelly yellow mess on the ground. Mm-hmm. And it was highly dramatic and very serious. And at the same time, we got two other loosen aphids turned up as well, P aphid and the blue green aphid. So we had a sort of a trifecta. Ironically, we had. Uh, 
it was very difficult to bring in superior cultivars because Hunter River was pretty good. It was it was very adaptable to a range of conditions. So mm. you could bring you could you could bring in an American line, it might be five or ten percent better. Once the aphid was in there, we had trials out there, nothing to do with aphids, but uh, we suddenly had these beautifully growing lucents plots with the dead Hunter River plots there. So farmers very quickly saw the value of having resistant cultivars. And so because California and a lot of southern Australia is very similar, we were able to import a lot of Californian resistant alfalfas, I'd say, but loosened varieties. And so that underpinned the, the success of, of controlling uh, the spotted alfalfa. But really it was the resistant cultivars which were the, were the major the major way we solved that problem. So we had then had cultivars which were resistant to all three aphids. And, mm-hmm. uh, but equally, in the first couple of years, we, we, in New South Wales, we, they, met, they generated insecticide-resistant aphids early on because farmers were just spraying, spraying, spraying to try and control them. But once we got the resistant cultivars as the backbone of the, of the program, it really became not too big an issue. Mm. So that sort of speaks on... Uh, choosing good genetic stock, and I think that that's really step one when we're talking about IPM. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about what's meant by cultural methods, Peter? Well, cultural methods can be a range of things. Some of it's just sort of simply making sure that you eliminate sort of if you've got infested crop crops from a previous crop, particularly say if you've got a vegetable growing area where you've got sequential cropping, it's making sure that the weeds are removed and infested crop materials either ploughed ploughed under well so that it doesn't uh, it doesn't allow for further breeding of population. So one of the so for example one of the pests I'm currently working on is, is serpentine leaf miner. It's a new incursion into uh, New South Wales and Queensland, but it's potentially so these are an agrimized fly, and these are worldwide they're, they're very important. But they're, they're what we call a secondary pest. They're really only a problem because if people spray, they get rid of their parasitic wasps. But one of the ways they, they, they the, once the larva finishes feeding on the, the leaf, it, it cuts itself out of the leaf, drops down into the soil where it pupates. Mm. And so one of the ways people get a, is an important way between crops is to make sure that that's ploughed under up to about 10 centimetres, sometimes chopped as well. Just to enable, make it really difficult for those pupae to actually to fly to emerge from the pupae and come back up into the soil. So if they just drop on the surface, soil surface in the first lower, say 10, 15 millimetres, they'll have no trouble in, in emerging. But we're talking here about flies that are pretty small. They're only sort of two millimetres long probably. So you're not, they're not like March flies or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So they're very small flies, but that's a classic case of a cultural control. So and also the other ones are sort of, well, in some ways you could talk about Crop rotation is very important. Mm. Not not growing crop on crop. That's if you've got, especially with nematodes and things like that. If you keep putting potato crop after potato crop, you can guarantee that you you may well end up with nematode problems as well as root root pathogens. Some of the other there's some innovative ways people are looking at cultural controls. It could well be things such as uh, strip cropping and things like that. Having uh, not having entire crop to, to your actual your actual your crop that you're actually growing, you may well have strips of uh, wildflowers or things such as that to promote your beneficials and also to promote your bees because often, often the crops require the bees to, uh, to pollinate, pollinate the, the flowers as well. So they're equally as important and equally at risk with uh, 
undisciplined use of broad spectrum insecticides. A lot of these cultural methods too, it's sort of, you know, you can go back through, uh, through history back into the, you know, 10th century feudal farming and they, and they did their strip cropping. They were tending to, uh, they were, rotations were often the only way they could get things done. But mm. in, for example, in Victoria, when I was growing up, we had a, our Mallee and the Wimmera, we had a lot of, it was wheat sheep farming. So they had wheat, they had pasta. And so that was quite a distinct form of uh, rotating the crop. And it's rapidly changed to sort of uh, all cropping. So you have pulses as well as wheat. And so you have, you know, you've got massive investment in farming machinery, but you don't necessarily have, uh, and you've got a tremendous amount of canola. And so, you know, farmers understand the rotations. And so it's really important to get disease breaks. And so that if you keep growing wheat on wheat on wheat, you will end up with root pathogens. But canola is a really good crop. It has chemicals in the in the roots that help to, uh, you know, sterilise the soil a little bit. So we'll get rid of the pathogens at least anyway, the glucosinolates. So, so it re- relies very heavily on, on crop rotations to keep the, the system going. But equally, you don't have quite as much uh, natural sort of nodulation of, of clovers and things to, be, to put nitrogen into the soil. So there tends to be more fertilisers need to be put in. You know, the pulses will, will bring in some fix some nitrogen, but it's, it's still not like it used to be when we had the, the sheep and the wheat. So it seems like when you're talking about cultural methods, you're really talking about the environment in which the plants are growing. Is that right? It is. It is. It's sort of, and it sort of gets back to this Indonesian thing of growing healthy plants. If your plants are growing well, that you're well on the way to, uh, to avoiding your problems. Mm. But equally, there's, you know, you, you've got to, and that's why the monitoring is so careful because you get you may get something that crops up once every ten years. You may and if you're just blithely not looking, you'll get you get a terrible shot. Mm. Uh, it'll depend a bit on what's happening in the in, in the whole landscape. So it's so many of these crops we look we try and get a sort of a landscape approach where uh, something they use in, in cotton areas as well like that to try and get the whole industry following certain practices to uh, when you're dealing with pests that are that are migratory or that are, they're roaming around the countryside, so they're not just on your crop. They're not just on your paddocks. They, they'll be on everybody's paddocks in that area. So, mm. so what what you do impacts what someone else does. So if you if farmer A neglects ne- neglects a crop, they could well be leading to infest infestations onto other people's properties. Mm. Totally, and that's sort of an ethical thing. You know, that's beyond just what's happening on your farm. What you're saying is what you're doing in your property has effects to your neighbours. And that's not only true with agriculture, that's also true with landscape garden maintenance as well. Yeah, certainly. It's sort of, um, and I guess it's, it's, yeah, it's sort of a community type of approach. It's sort of, uh, and, it, and by and large, you know, it's very, it, it, you know, that's one of the great things in a rural community is that people are community-minded. They might they do it instinctively rather than uh, consciously possibly. But, uh, you know, mm. they have so many issues that they're all in it together. That mm. uh, you know, you sort of have a locust outbreak. It's it's not going to be your. It's it's, it's everybody's impacted. Mm. Same with bushfires and grassfires. It's sort of, but equally, it's your management of your of your land. It's not just for protecting your own self. You you're protecting your neighbours as well. Mm. And equally, if you don't, if you have people that don't look after their land, that's impacting negatively on the farmers on the community. So that's uh, mm. But really, I think one of the 
as I said, going back to management, it's about it's not one size fits all. There's a range of options that you can use, but the important thing is monitoring, monitoring your crop, seeing how it's going, and understanding the sorts of things that that you that may be impacting. And so there's there's things like pheromone traps to detect arrival of moths. You mentioned pheromone traps there, and I suppose that we can mark them down as one of the physical methods of IPM. Can you tell us a little bit more about physical methods? Yeah, well, some, in some ways, there's, there's two ways. Pheromone traps, which are used the sex pheromone, it's the female sex pheromone attracting the male. So the, 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 male, the trap is actually catching numbers of males, and it's an indication that there's a lot of adult activity is likely to be egg-laying within the a fairly short period of time. So that, that can be really useful. We've got a lot of knowledge about the key pests. We can we can predict if we know there's egg laying happening on day one, we, we can run temperature dependent models to work out when when it's most likely to be, you know, those eggs are likely to be hatching and when you, when young larvae might be there so that targets are monitoring. There's also some been some terrific work done with for example oriental fruit moth on peaches, where in fact control of the oriental fruit moth has been largely done by mass use of the pheromone, sort of leading to mating disruption. So mm. there's so much pheromone being released by these lures that the males can't find the females. They, they've just following these trails that are all there and uh, it can lead to very effective control of orange fruit moth. Not so good yet with codling moth, but <laughs> for these, these are, you know, it's, it's been one of the great successes in, in orchards. And so I suppose one of the beautiful things about sort of physical traps is that, yeah, you've got pests there, but you're using a physical method to actually get rid of them rather than a chemical one. Yeah. Look, it's pretty hard to sort of, if you're in an open crop situation, you need an awful lot of light traps to uh, trap all the insects. You know, I think often the traps really are for for monitoring. Mm. If you're dealing in protected cultivation, that's a different story where you've got, uh, you know, you can have screening to stop thrips coming in, stop aphids coming in different size mesh for different things. So that, that can be really important. You know, there's sort of, uh, well, I suppose in some like, you know, when you've got, you know, netting for control for birds, contr- stopping birds attacking cherries and these sorts of things. So that's sort of physical control. You, you've only got to drive around the fruit growing areas now, some of the stone, uh, the soft fruits that a lot more insect or pest netting being put out there to protect crops at, at certain at key times. So that's certainly one, one case like that. Mm. And I've also seen sticky traps being used for gall wasps on citrus trees and, you know, certainly. if you have a backyard garden, you might be able to pluck some, some of the caterpillars off. But that some of these methods don't necessarily work on a large scale, as you've said. Well, that's right. Well, you know, there's, you've got to be fairly brutal, but it's, you know, brushing uh, <laughs> caterpillars does a great job. But, you know, for example, in a home garden, it, we often have a lot of people that have, would have light bang up a moth attacking I just think of my garden with, you know, they just love mint. And, it, and mm. you only need one moth to lay one little egg patch and you suddenly have, you know, 40 or 50 small larvae making damage in the, your herb pot. And the last thing you want to do with your herb pot is to be uh, giving it the full chemical attack. Mm. You know, there are some things that you can use. There's, there's dipel, which is Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a, a bacteria that attacks caterpillars, basically. It's, it's the one that's found in the soil. So this is, you know, you can, you can eat that by the shovel load and, and it would be not harmful to you. Mm. Uh, pretty unpleasant, I think, pretty un- but they're available in small, in small packets. So they are things that would be very safe for home gardens if 
your crops getting hammered by uh, mm. by caterpillars rather than going going to Bunnings and well, there are some products which are quite useful, but there are a lot of you know pre-mixed pyrethroid and fungus synthetic pyrethroids and fungicides that you know just for people to spray. But uh, it's a pretty much a blunderbuss. So I think if people were prepared to use something like there's another product called Success, which is again very low toxicity, and Diapil are both really good for for caterpillars. Success is pretty good against strips as well. But these are things that are. It's, it's understanding those sorts of products, which could be really useful in a, in a, in a home garden and also in, in, in vegetable garden, vegetable areas. Mm. You know, we call those very soft on on beneficials. Certainly, diapils success is pretty soft against most things, but it's it's pretty hard on some parasitic wasps. Mm. So I guess we're talking about chemical methods here. Before we touch too deeply on chemical methods, I just wanted to touch on one other method. If people have heard of IPM. They've often only considered bringing in predatory insects, which are only a sort of a one part of this philosophy. Can you speak on biological control methods and do these only include insects? They don't always, but more often than not, it does, it does relate to, to insects. As I said to start with, most of our pests that we have are of crops that are exotic to Australia. And a lot of our pests that come in have come in from other parts of the world, and they've often come in without their own natural enemies. So, so maybe if in Europe they mightn't be causing much of a problem, but in come to Australia without the natural enemy, they can be they're not not being regulated. Uh, so that's that's one way the biocontrol, a classical biocontrol, where you'd actually go through the a lot of lot of research to to bring in appropriate biological control agents, usually highly specific parasitic wasps, mm. but we also have a range of generalist par- predators in particular, which are native, but they're omnivorous, if you like. They're, they're not too fussy. If they, the carabins run into a caterpillar, they, they'll eat most of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Same with aphids that fall off the plant. They'll, they'll, they can be really important. Mm. A lot of this happens at nighttime when people aren't actually looking. Mm. So there's a, lot, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. You know, spiders can be really important. Uh, you've only got to go out into a crop where you know, first thing in the morning after you see the dews on the on the on the young seedlings in the crop, and you'll see this sort of sheen of massive webs that are over these young seedlings. So there's actually a terrific natural system of natural enemies out there that uh, just working away without us really knowing what's going on. So so that that's important. Now, look, there are there have been situations with some plant pathogens uh, where they've been able to sort of bring in bring another pathogens which can attack them but it's much it's much more difficult mm. i think it's one of the sorts of things that are we're learning more and more is that is the sort of you know some of the mycorrhizal fungi that they have in in soils can be really important in terms of uh, control of plant diseases and and of insects uh, so all this is all getting back to soil health mm. but there's a lot more with you know we have there's a number of companies that do produce a few natural enemies for uh, horticulture, often it's predatory mites for two-spotted mite control. There are some thrips, bugs, some bugs which will attack thrips. Mm. There's a range of things, but it's it can be a bit expensive for a home garden. But it, you know, I certainly use it because one of the things you find with a home garden is that sometimes you, you do have problems because you're actually very isolated. You, you might only have one or two plants that's affected with uh, two-spotted mite, but it's not been they're not being discovered by by mm. natural enemies, and they might be in a, in a situation. So, so 
while it can be quite expensive to start with, you can actually keep the, the predatory mites uh, going quite well, and they, and they do a fabulous job. But uh, you've got to be pretty enthusiastic to do that. Yeah, I think that I'm a very enthusiastic gardener, so I'm exactly the sort of person who would use this service. And there's a great yeah. company that I love called Bugs for Bugs in Australia. Yeah. Have you ever worked with Bugs for Bugs? Not specifically, but, you know, Dan Papacek is, you know, he's a, he's a bit of a legend in the in Australian biocontrol and uh, he's he's done a fabulous job to sort of, you know, it's got a couple of key things, but, that's, yeah, it's been a order of Australia for Dan, that's what I say. <laughs> he's, he's, yeah. he's been a legend and, it's, and, he, and continues to do really good work and it's, uh, mm. and what I like, it's people like Dan have, and there are a number of other ones that have got a real passion for uh, for biocontrol and so it can be a thankless task at times but they have a big they've they've developed a good reputation and they've uh, you know they've produced trigger grammar they've produced parasitic wasps for scale for citrus uh, different different groups do different things but they all have you know a lot of them have two spotted mite control with phytoseals for similar and you know they're highly reliable you know they you put in the, the predatory mites and you know they'll they'll work but also it helps, you know, once you start looking at them, you, you start to recognise them. And in fact, you'll find that, you know, in parts of your garden, they'll, be, they'll probably be there anyway. And so it's, <laughs> but, but it is, it's one of those ironies that you, you can go to bunnies and you buy all sorts of things to control two spotted mite, but in fact, nothing really works because of, uh, they, have, they tend to be resistant to most things. There's not, there's not too many things that will give you long-term control. You spray with pug retorts, I don't think it'll work very well. Is my personal opinion. Yeah, absolutely. So, if any of our listeners in Australia out there would like to sort of look into biological controls, I definitely recommend you take a photo of your pest and send it through to Bugs for Bugs and you might get a response. They've sort of got a lot of expertise and they'll be able to help you out and tell you what sort of insects you need to introduce. Exactly right. And there's, they have a, there's, a, there's several producers and, they, and they've got an association that uh, they work closely together. Mm. Do you have any other recommendations? No, I think I think you know bugs and bugs is an important biological one, but I think what you will find in yourself is that you've actually got a lot of biological resources in your own garden. Um, and if you actually give them a chance to do their job instead of just nuking them straight away with the first chemical that you see, well, that's right. With things like aphids, breed incredibly quickly. Aphids are a strange beast because the rib. In Australia, we're essentially having them reproducing part of it genetically. So one female just keeps pumping them out. So every time you see an aphid, you've actually got three generations of aphids because the aphid has got might have ten or twenty aphids waiting to be born. But those aphids themselves have their own embryos, so it's what we call telescoping of generations. And this is how they build up so quickly because they don't have to sort of they're developing in utero, if you like. So uh, there's sort of three generations of you look at it under a microscope, you can see all these different size eyes. <laughs> And so that, that's how they survive because in the wild, there's only a, a few, very few host plants that are available for them. But when we provide, you know, for example, ornamental pears this year in, in Melbourne, we had uh, fabulous populations of uh, aphids on, on them there, absolutely dripping. But equally, we had coccinellids, ladybirds coming in and wasn't, didn't, maybe two weeks, they were totally cleaned up. And aphids in Australia, we've only got a handful of native aphids. We've got about 160 species of aphids, and I think maybe 10 or 12 are actually considered to be indigenous. Nearly everything else comes comes in from overseas. We get about one new species every year over the years, so we just keep getting a steady stream of new 
aphids coming in. And so it's an ongoing challenge to, uh, to manage them. But often these cases, they come in in the first couple of years, they can be dramatically out of control. And then we quickly, well, when I say we, the resident natural enemies balances that they sort of, they, the predators build up. And so it goes back into balance. So it's, uh, it's only a, it's only a short term hiccup, usually, famous mm. last words. <laughs> so, Peter, we've talked about biological, genetic, cultural, and physical methods so far. I guess this brings us now to chemical methods, which would be an absolute last resort. Should we just reach for the first chemical on the shelf, or does a bit of thought need to be going into this process as well? No, look, a lot of thought. And equally, you know, IPM certainly has, depending on the size of the enterprise. If you're growing 100 acres of cabbages, you'd be struggling to grow your cabbages without using insecticides. But if you're growing a small property, you've got more of a chance. But it's important that, say, for cabbages, something that I've done a fair bit of work on, there's a, a really important pest called diamondback moth, and that became highly resistant to synthetic pyrethroids in the mid-90s in Victoria, mid-80s in Queensland. And it became virtually impossible to grow uh, marketable broccoli. When you say broccoli and cabbages, these are really the same species, it's just different cultivars of the same species. Different different cultivars and different you know, different sort of cruciferous vegetables, but they're all different lines, same with cauliflowers. But what we learned was with a sort of a very, you know, it was a very much an industry-driven project. We had people, national researchers, and, we've, and they came up with a, an insecticide resistance management plan because that's what it was about. We had some more selective insecticides which were useful, but it was really important not to go down, not to switch from one thing to another thing and just blow that one out of the water. So we, it was about getting people in, in regions to limit their use to certain windows during the year so that you weren't getting, you were only getting selection against for resistance in a, over a particular short period of time. And then you had to move to another group because mm. our chemistry is, there's a number of different actives. And so it's, if you stay within, if you have, Six different synthetic pyrethroids, all with different brand names. That's not rotating because it's the same mm. active ingredient. It's the same target site that's been used. So, so it's important that uh, it's important that you look at the chemical groups that have been used and, and rotate them carefully. But it's really important also to to only spray when you need to. It enables you know early forage damage is not going to be critical in many cases, but also that enables these parasitoid wasps to. Uh, to build up. So if you can get the first generation through, the second generation can really do a fantastic job. And so a lot of good work's been done with that. So if you can look after your parasitoid wasps and only target with an insecticide when, when your monitoring says, look, things are getting out of control, that works a lot better. But in the middle of this pyrethroid resistance, we had people spraying three and four or five times a, a week because it just wasn't working. And so that was clearly unsustainable for the growers, it was, unsust- it was highly undesirable for the consumers and generally it was, uh, you know, that was what we, a classic thing, what we call a pesticide treadmill and that's, mm. and that's where the more, the more resistant it becomes, the more people spray to try and get rid of it, the more resistant the pest becomes so you just get, it quickly becomes unmanageable but, but we've got, a, we're in a lucky position, we've got, there's a range of tools people can use, we understand a lot more about what's going on it's important to take advice, mm. and that's where you know the bigger growers are all. Many of them would have uh, IPM consultants that can manage. They can, they bring a lot of experience to their situation, and they can usually cut the spray bill enormously by using appropriate insecticides. A lot of 
would and they would spray only when when needed. So that's and so that would be the philosophy to bring back into a the home garden situation as well. And maybe also choosing the least toxic sort of option first. Very much so. Look, because you if you're in a home garden situation, you you're not having to foot the bill for a, a hundred acres, which can be very expensive when you're looking at a cheap insecticide has got an appeal to an accountant. But there's a number of things you've got. There's a lot of pest oils, which can be very useful. Effectively, just smothering the scale or smothering the aphid. But as I mentioned before, with caterpillars, diapil's really good, and that's just has to be consumed by the caterpillar. So you might still get a little bit of damage for a couple of days, but it's quite dramatic how it works. And choosing something like what's Beno said, which success, that's again something that was derived from a from soil bacteria. And so these are things which can work very well and they're available in small packs so it's not like you have to you know they are accessible to people and they're widely spread so that's what I suggest to people is um, if you do have to spray try and spray with things such as success maybe use all you know there's, there's, a, there's a range of pest oils not just white oil there's a, there's a range of pest oils that you can get which can work do a pretty good job as well you know even with aphids you can squirt a lot of them off with a hose as well just to start with them but uh, often it's it's a short period when you know then your natural enemies can can catch up. Yeah. If you're preparing flowers or roses for a, a flower show, your criteria for damage might be a bit different to the average mm. the average person. Mm. Yeah, and you don't have to worry about eating them either. No, but still, it's sort of it's pretty depressing when you go out there and you see in a marketplace, which I've seen in Indonesia and places like that, where you can write your name in the with your fingernail, if you want it, with a stick on the yeah. residues or on the on the leaves. One thing in Australia, we we have a very regulated system with our insecticides. So, insecticides we buy are, are sort of high quality. We we have very strict residue limits, and so that you know it takes a lot to get something registered. So we often we we have very good chemical equipment. So we're looking at parts per billion. We go into other parts of the world, places like China, where a lot of the insecticides are have a hell of a lot of uh, impurities in them and people die from insecticide poisoning eating while eating vegetables. It's it's totally foreign to our sort of understanding. We we, we get worried about one part per billion. The in that situations I've seen where, you know, I've heard of a university that was working on diamondback moth and they, they had just as at the project was starting it was an ACR project, they had something like seventy two students admitted to hospital with mm. insecticide poisoning due to what they were eating in the uh, in the university canteen, you know, so it's we uh, we do grumble sometimes about the red tape, but it's in fact really important mm. for our for, for consumers' health that we actually do have very good strict standards. People can always do the wrong thing, of course, but you know we are in a very strong position health-wise because we do have the strong regulations and you know, and the, it's in the interest of supermarkets to make sure that they aren't selling contaminated uh, produce, but. Uh, if you're growing it yourself, the last thing you want to do is to be, uh, you know, the whole point of it is to be growing uh, crops that you can harvest at the precise moment when you want to eat them and uh, as healthy as possible. So, you know, if it means plucking a couple of caterpillars off, so much the better. So, You spoke about regulation there, and I guess regulation is also a method of integrated pest management. How can governmental regulation help us keep pests at bay in this country? Well, it's really important, we, you know, as an island nation, our biosecurity is absolutely vital. And we, we do have, you know, while things do come through, we, we do, we're able to sort of get a lot of uh, materials coming in that 
that get nipped at, at the borders. So our biosecurity is important. And biosecurity is important at a national level. But I, th- I think industries have recognised that the biosecurity aspect is something really important for individual growers as well. To be, It's not just a national system. It's, a, it's a, an individual enterprise system as well to have a biosecurity plan to, to make sure that uh, disease material, infested material is not coming onto a property. Mm. Some of the some of the pathogens, in particular club root and cabbages, you know, people coming in with dirty boots can be a great way of transmitting soil-borne diseases. And so, more and more growers, the big growers, are being much more cautious about uh, movement onto their properties. And you know, that's a good thing. It's sort of, uh, but it's also biosecurity is also about being alert to to new things turning up, not just saying, "Oh, I've got aphids here." You know, it could be a new aphid. You know, we've got leaf miners that just turned up in Sydney and Queensland. We already have other leaf miners, which you know, grow on you see on South Vessels regularly. Um, this is mm. one of the areas I'm currently working on. But it's important that people recognise that I don't, I haven't seen that aphid before, and at least seek help just to get them identified if they're worrying about it. For example, with this leaf miners, Liriomyza huitabrensis, which was found in New South Wales, my understanding is that it was first identified in October last year, but the growers, where it was first found, had been having problems since February. But he knew he had an insect. He knew he had a problem with his couldn't quite control this insect, and I guess it slowed down a bit over winter. But it was only when it really got out of control that somebody worked out there was something that people hadn't seen before. So, and that's no fault of the grower, but it is that sort of the need to be curious about what you've got, and it's yeah. getting easier and easier to to do that. So it's, and I think one of the the big the big changes that's happened in the past, there was a great penalty for somebody to to be the first one to own up they had a they had a problem because they went into quarantine and suddenly they were almost out of business. So it was not an incentive at all to uh, to put mm. your hand up and say, "Look, what's the, I've got this thing. I can't. I don't know what it is." Mm. But the, the tendency was to sort of wait and hope someone else found it somewhere else. Mm. But I think that's been one of the great advances in recent years: the focus on biosecurity, the need to Industries to own these situations, and so, so people can aren't necessarily going to be put into severe lockdown if they have a new pest, depending on what the mm. pest is, of course. But there's they'll be supported, so it's no longer being quite so draconian as it was. Because with sampling property A, there's nothing to suggest that they were, they aren't necessarily the first person. They, they just were the one that was found first, but they will. But usually, the case is that in a week's time they'll find it in three or four places. But uh, it is a, it's an ongoing issue and it's one where industries have realised that, that unless they can support their individual growers, there's no incentive whatsoever to uh, to put your hand up. And, and that's just in the long term, that's their counterproductive nature for, for the industry. So there needs to be support for people. Mm, absolutely. And I suppose another thing that I wanted to let people know about is that these methods aren't only good for agriculture, they're also good for, you know, other disciplines like Landscape gardening and even just home backyard veggie gardens. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of um, look. I'm I'm horribly biased, as you probably gathered. <laughs> Nothing I like better is you know for children to sort of understand nature. Because mm. when we talk about pests, we've given a label to these in these uh, these insects, for example, but they're just going on about their business, and it's a fascinating thing to to understand and. It's far easier to to learn it yourself by observing in your own garden than you know getting out a book and reading about it to actually see parasitoids coming out of a cabbage white butterfly larva. It's 
pretty impressive. <laughs> and a lot of things that you can just find in your weeds around the, around the street, leaf miners and aphids and ladybirds and all this sort of stuff. So it's, I, my great joy is when I see a small child really looking at what's going on because that's what you're growing in a garden. A garden's not just flowers and things like that. You're creating an ecosystem in your, on your land and, uh, and life. Nature's brutal. <laughs> and you may have paid $20 for a plant that, that gets bowled over by something, but you know, it was probably a dodgy plant to start with. You've got to be prepared for, for losses. And that's, as all gardeners know, that's how nurseries make money because not everything to plant survives for whatever mm. reason. But you keep on trying and it's that pleasure of being able to observe and, uh, and watch what's going on. So, Peter, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about? I'm afraid that I'm very focused. One of the things that I, I regret not going to work on in, in other countries until I was about 50, and then it was an eye-opener as an agricultural scientist to see, A, the problems that people were encountering, but B, the enthusiasm for growers to, uh, to solve their problems. So I, I was lucky enough to work in Indonesia and Timor-Leste, and, and I think these are sorts of situations that these people need a lot of support, and I believe that there's tremendous and, – and Timor-Leste is a place very close to my heart. There's, it's a very poor country. I know we've you – know, there might be gas and all these sort of things. Many of the people have a real subsistence lifestyle. They have a lot of periods when it's really dry and they struggle for, um, struggle for food. They have to rely on maize for many months of the year. And I think if people can support any charity dealing with uh, Timor-Leste agriculture, it's money very well spent. It's um, uh, all the major funding organisations do that, Oxfam, etc. But Timor-Leste is, is such a – had, had a very tough time with their independence, uh, quite a tragic time. A lot of people had to become farmers that had never been farmers before. Uh, so we, when we, they had great trouble even knowing how to grow seeds and just basic. So people were just thrust out of a city and having to sort of fend for themselves growing vegetables. And I believe that's a, that's a cause that's close to my heart and it's, they're incredibly close neighbours. And I think the more we can do to support these very small islands, but a small group of people, um, I think that's the cause closest to my heart, I think. That's a beautiful message. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure. It's not possible to have a rigid system when it comes to integrated pest management, and a true IPM approach requires foresight along with constant monitoring and adapting to the circumstances that arise. The more tools you have in your IPM toolbox, the better equipped you'll be to adapt to the pests that you find on your property. Don't forget that these principles provide a problem-solving framework that works whether you're on a large-scale agricultural paddock, the front yard of your ornamental garden, or even on your balcony or indoor plants in an urban setting. If you're a professional maintenance gardener like me and you think your boss or co-workers would benefit from this information, do them a favour and send them a link to listen to this episode. I've done a diploma and in my TAFE, I had an integrated pest management unit and in my assignment, I had to perform integrated pest management on iceberg roses and my technique was to do nothing because as soon as I saw the aphids, I noticed that the very next week they had mummies. 
from parasitic wasps. So I was, I, I think I was the laziest one in my unit. I just said, do nothing. 